Section 8 of The Lieutenant and Others. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeffrey Wilson, Ames, Iowa. The Lieutenant and Others by Sapper. The Mine. Some are born Huns, and others have Huns thrust upon them. Last night we exploded a mine under a redoubt in the enemy's trenches, and successfully occupied the crater. A considerable number of Germans were killed. Thus the official communique. And yet the great powers that be have no idea that this small local success was entirely due to David Jones, sometime miner in a coal field in South Wales. In fact, the betting is about a fiver to an acid drop that they have no idea that he exists. Bar the police in his local village, who disliked him intensely, and his NCOs out here, who disliked him still more, very few people do know that he exists. Undersized, in every way an undesirable acquaintance, a silent and morose man, it is nevertheless an undoubted fact that had it not been for David Jones, the aforementioned crater would not have been occupied, and the considerable number of defunct Germans would now be alive. And this was the way of it. The presence of David in such an unhealthy locality as Flanders was entirely due to his regrettable lack of distinction between Meum and Tuum. Exactly what occurred is immaterial, but deciding that the evils he knew of in the shape of prison were probably worse than the evils he did not know of in the shape of the Hun, our friend managed to evade the two pressing attentions of the police, and in due course found himself across the water in one of the new formed tunneling companies. These companies are composed almost entirely of those who from their earliest infancy have been reared in the atmosphere of moles rather than in the atmosphere of men, and have as their work out here the great game of mining and countermining. Early in the proceedings, it became apparent to those whose duty and privilege it was to command David Jones that his affection for woolly bears, pipsqueaks, crumps, marias, and others of the great genus Obus was not of that type which passeth the love of women. It is even rumoured that on one occasion in a wood behind the line which was receiving attention from the Hun, and in which lay our hero's temporary abode, he made a voluntary confession of several real and a few imaginary misdeeds of his early youth, in the hope of being sent back to prison and safety. Which is all by the way. In the course of time, however, the tunneling company was called upon to justify its existence, to become again as moles and not men, to gasp and sweat in the bowels of the earth, and thus the wood where they had been knew them no more. In front of our line, poked out a little from the German lines, 
there lay a semicircular redoubt. It was strong, very strong, as many officers in many regiments of foot will confirm. The ground in front of it bore eloquent testimony to frequent, unsuccessful attempts to dislodge the enemy. Gunners had gunned it preparatory to assaults. Gunners had gunned it all day and every day for many days, but so far in vain. Always were the infantry met with the same deadly cross-machine gun fire did they set foot over our parapet. Wherefore, having failed to subdue it from the air and over the ground, they set for the miners and told them to try from underneath. And thus it was that David Jones came again to his natural element. Now I venture to think that of that natural element, comparatively little is known by those who remain in the island over the water. The charge of cavalry, the thunder of guns, the grim infantry attack through the swirling mists of dawn. These can be visualized, can be imagined. Pictures by artists, quite a small percentage of which are more or less accurate, give to those who have never seen the dread drama of war a tolerably accurate impression of what happens. But of David Jones's natural element, of that work which goes on day and night, ceaselessly, burrowing under the ground nearer, ever nearer the goal, there are no pictures to draw. And so, before I come to tell of what my ruffian miner did under the earth, in the place where the infantry had charged so often in vain, and of the German engineer officer, who was discovered with part of his helmet forced into his brain and his head split asunder, I would digress for a space, and try to the best of my ability to paint that setting in which the human moles live and move and have their being. I would take those who may care to follow me to the front-line trenches, where at a certain place, a saphead perchance, or a Johnson hole just behind, or even in the trench itself, a deep, shored-up shaft has been sunk. From the front, nothing is visible, and, by suitable screening, the inquisitive ones who fly overhead are prevented from seeing anything to cheer them up and make them excited. At the bottom of the shaft, two men are sitting, shoveling a heap of loose earth into buckets. Each bucket, as it is filled, is hoisted up on a rope, working on a pulley, only to be lowered again empty when the earth has been tipped into some convenient shell hole, screened from the sight of the gentleman opposite. If seen, the steady exodus of earth from a trench at one point is apt to give the Hun furiously to think, always an unwise proceeding. In front of the two men is a low black hole, from which at regular intervals there comes a man, stripped to the waist, glistening with sweat, pushing a small trolley on leathered wheels while the two men silently tip up the trolley and empty out the earth, he stands blinking for a moment at the patch of blue sky, only to disappear into the low black hole, his trolley empty. 
Everything is silent. There is no hurry. Perhaps the occasional zip of a bullet, a lazy crump of a shell down the line, that is all. That and the low black hole, ominous, sinister, the entrance to the mine. And now, mind your head. Let us follow the man with the empty trolley. From far ahead comes the muffled thud of a pick, and behind one the light of day is streaming through the opening of the gallery. Bent almost double, one creeps forward, guiding oneself by one's hands as they touch walls that feel dank and cold. Then a turning, and utter absolute darkness, until far ahead a faint light appears, the light at the front face of the mine. Another man pushing a full trolley squeezes past you, his body gleaming faintly white in the darkness, while steadily, without cessation, by the light of an electric lamp, the man on the front face goes on picking, picking, his body glistening as if it had been dipped in oil. When he is tired, another takes his place. There is no pause. Each yard as it is taken out is shored up with mine cases and sheeting. Otherwise, the whole thing may collapse on your head. As you go on, your hands against the sides, you will find, possibly, an opening on one side or the other. The opening of another gallery. A gallery with a T-head at the end, all finished. No earth is being carted from here. There is, for the time, no one in it. It is a listening gallery. And with the listening gallery and all it stands for, we come to grips with the real drama of mining. Were it merely the mechanical removal of earth, the mechanical making of a tunnel from one place to another, it would perhaps be a safer occupation. But just as inspiring to write about as a new cure for corns. Moreover, it was from a listening gallery that David Jones, still all in good time. Mining, like most games, is one at which two can play. And it is not a matter of great surprise that neither side will allow the other one to play unmolested. Therefore, where there is mining, there also is countermining, and the two operations are not exactly the same. For while mining is essentially an offensive act designed to blow up a portion of the enemy's trenches and form a crater in which men may shelter, countermining is essentially a defensive act designed merely to wreck the advancing mine. Thus both sides may at the same time be running out a mine towards the opposite trenches, and also a countermine in another part of the line to meet the hostile mine. Moreover, in a mine the charge is large, to effect as much damage as possible. In a countermine, the charge is small, in order not to make too large a crater in which the enemy may unscrupulously take up his abode. All of which is essential for the proper understanding of David Jones, his act. At periods, therefore, during the twenty-four hours, all work in the mine is suspended, the muffled tapping of the pick ceases, and silence, as of the grave, reigns in the underground world. And during this period, in each of the listening galleries, skilled men stand with their ears glued to the earth, and some with instruments of which I may not speak, and listen. 
There, under the earth, with their dead lying above them, in that no man's land between the trenches, with ears strained in the silence, a silence that can be felt, they listen for that dread noise, the muffled tap-tap of the enemy's miners countermining towards them. Sometimes the mine goes through without any countermine at all. More often not. Frequently, the countermine is exploded too soon, or the direction is wrong and no damage is done. But sometimes it is otherwise. Sometimes there will be a dull, rumbling explosion. A few mine cases will fly upwards from the center of the ground between the trenches, perhaps a boot or a head, but nothing more. And the miners will mine no more. The countermine has been successful. But the estimation of distance and direction under the ground by listening to the muffled tap of the other man is a tricky business and depends on many things. A fissure in the right direction and it will sound close too when in reality it is far away. An impervious strata across your front and it will sound afar off when in reality it is near. Which all goes to show that it is a game of chance. But I would ask the armchair critic, the man in the street, if he have a spark of imagination to transport himself to a mine where there is yet ten yards to go. Whenever for a space the moles stop and the underworld silence settles like a pall, they hear the tap-tap of the other workers' ghostly fingers coming out to meet them. And then the tap-tap ceases. Have the others gone in the wrong direction, bearing away from them? Or are they close too, three or four feet away, even now charging the head of their countermine with explosive? Shall they go on, for time is precious, and finish that ten yards? Or shall they stop a while and see if they fire their countermine? Is it safe to do another two yards before they stop, or is it even now too late? Is that great tearing explosion coming at once, in the next second, or isn't it coming at all? And all the time, those glistening, sweating men carry on. Pick, pick, pick. It is for the officer in charge to decide, and until then... Now, I don't, for a moment, think that David Jones regarded the matter at all in that light. An overmastering relief at being in a place where whiz-bangs cease from troubling and pip-squeaks are at rest drove out all lesser thoughts. When it happened, he was as nearly contented as he was capable of being. The mine was ready to fire. Its head was well under the center of the German redoubt and all the morning slabs of gun-cotton had been carried up to the head. With loving care the electric leads had been taken up, the detonator fixed up, everything was ready. The earth to damp the charge, so laboriously carted out, had been brought back again, to prevent the force of the explosion blowing down the gallery instead of going upwards and to the casual observer it seemed that the gallery ended merely in a solid wall of earth into which vanished two harmless-looking black leads. Now, the mine was going to be fired at seven o'clock in the evening. 
One does not repair with great trouble an elaborate affair of that sort and then loose it off at any old time. All the infantry were warned. The gunners were warned. Staff officers at discreet distances buzzed like bluebottles. As soon as it went off, the infantry were to rush the redoubt. The gunners were to shell behind to prevent the counterattack, and the staff were to have dinner, which was all very right and proper. The only one of these details which interested David was the hour at which the mine was to go off. Until that time, he had fully made up his mind that the tea-head listening gallery, where he was comfortably smoking on a pile of sandbags, was a very much more desirable place than the trench up above, where, at or about the hour of 5.30, the Hun was wont to hate with shells of great violence coming from a direction which almost enfiladed the trench. He recalled with distinct aversion the man next him the previous evening who had stopped a large piece of shell with his head. At the same time, he had no intention of remaining in the tea head when the mine went off. 6.30 struck him as a good and propitious moment to take his departure to the dangers of the upper air. David Jones was not a man to take any risk that could be avoided, and the mere fact that everyone had been ordered out of the mine had no bearing on the subject whatever. Like his personal courage, his sense of discipline was nil. And so, in the dark silence of the mine gallery, lying at ease on sandbags, with no horrible whistlings overhead, David Jones settled himself to rest and ruminate, and in the fullness of time he slept. Now, the mining operations had gone without a hitch. Apparently the Hun had no idea that his privacy was going to be invaded, and no sounds of countermining had been heard. Once, very faint in the distance, a tapping had been heard about three days after they had started. Since then, it had not been repeated, and the officer in charge was not to be blamed for thinking that he had the show to himself. Nevertheless, it is an undoubted fact that the thing which woke David Jones was a large piece of earth falling on his face, and a light shining through the face of the listening gallery. The next moment, he heard a muttered ejaculation in a language he did not know, and great masses of earth rained down on his face while the light was extinguished. His training as a miner enabled him to see in a moment what had happened. That part of his mind worked instinctively. A German gallery had opened into their listening gallery. Some strata of soil had rendered it almost soundless, and his sleep during the last two hours had prevented him hearing the approach through the final two feet. All that he grasped in a flash. But what was far more to the point, he realized that in about two seconds he would be face to face with a horrible hun, a prospect which turned him cold with horror. Had he been capable of getting up, had his legs been capable of overcoming his terror, there is but little doubt that he would have fled to the safety of the open air. After all, a problematic shell is better than an encounter with a large and brutal man underground. But before he could move, a head and shoulders followed by a body came through the opening and fell almost on top of him. 
a torch was cautiously flashed, and by its light the trembling David saw a large and brutal-looking man peering round. Then the man moved forward. Evidently he had seen that he was in a gallery off the main one, and had failed to see our hero sheltering behind the sandbags. For a long while there was silence. David could hear the German's heavy breathing as he stood a few feet from him just where the main gallery crossed the entrance to the tea-head. He realized that he was afraid to flash his torch until he was quite certain there was no one about. But now David's mind was moving with feverish activity. So far he had escaped detection. But supposing more of these terrible beings came. Supposing this one came back and did not overlook him again. The thought nerved him to action. Cautiously, without a sound, he raised himself from behind the pile of sandbags and crept to the spot where the tea had left the short gallery that connected it to the main one. And there he stood in the inky darkness with the German a few feet in front of him. His plan was to make a dash for safety when the German started to explore the main gallery. It seemed an eternity. In reality, it was about half a minute, before the light was again flashed cautiously into the darkness. It cast round in a circle and then came to a halt. He heard the sharp intake of the German's breath and saw the light fixed on the two black leads. Then things moved quickly. The German laid down his pick and fumbled in his pocket for his wire cutters. Those leads told their story plain for all to read. Again, in a flash, the dangers of his position struck David. This accursed Hun would cut the leads and then return and run straight into him. He wouldn't bother to explore the gallery further. He would merely murder him and pass on. A horrible thought. With infinite caution, he reached for the pick. The German was muttering to himself, and trying to detach his wire cutters from his belt. At last he had them free, and flashing his torch once again, stooped forward to cut the lead. And as he did so with a grunt, David Jones struck, struck at the center of the head outlined in the circle of the light. There was a dreadful half-choked cry, and silence. Two minutes later, David Jones was in the trench, looking fearfully over his shoulder as if expecting pursuit. The idea of warning the officer in charge that a German gallery had struck through into theirs never even entered his head. It was a matter of complete indifference to him if another Hun came in and cut the wire, so long as he wasn't on hand to be cut too. So it was fortunate, perhaps, that David had overslept himself, as one minute after his arrival in the upper earth, there was a deafening, thunderous roar. A great mass of earth, roots, wood, and other fragments flew upward and then came raining down again. The infantry were across in a flash. The curtain of shrapnel descended, and the staff had dinner. There were two things that no one ever cleared up satisfactorily. One was the presence of a miner's pick of a pattern different to that in use in the British Army, in the tool dump of a certain tunneling company. But it was a very small thing and no one worried. 
The other was the presence of a German engineer officer in the mine shaft with his helmet, or part of it, in his brain. Various opinions were given by various people, but as they were all wrong, they don't matter. Anyway, the mine had been most successful, and everybody shook hands with everybody. All, that is, except David Jones, who was undergoing field punishment number one for stealing the emergency rum ration and getting drunk on it. Which is really rather humorous when you come to think of it. End of section 8